to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Eastern North Carolina is not just the home of Civil War Talk Radio or East Carolina University or the place where Pepsi was invented. It's also the site of one of the last successful Confederate offensives of the war. What was at stake in North Carolina early in 1864? What were the goals of the rebel offensive and what was actually achieved? We'll get answers to these and other questions from Hampton Newsom, author of The Fight for the Old North State, The Civil War in North Carolina, January to May 1864, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath. Emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University here in Greenville, North Carolina. Not, however, speaking for the university or its buildings or departments or anybody else, just for myself, my guest likewise speaks for no one but himself. Well, here at ECU, there was no football last weekend. There's a game we're going to lose this weekend against a much better team. But that means nothing when we think back to last weekend's ECU soccer match. I would not call them the women's team. ECU only has one team. There's no men's team. Uh, ECU soccer finished in a 1-1 draw with Memphis, ranked number eight in the country, 13-1 coming into the game. And uh, in NCAA soccer, to get a draw, you have to play the regulation 90 minutes and then two 10-minute overtimes without anyone scoring a goal. 
so that was just a massive result for ECU to uh, draw with the top 10 team. Very pleased to see the team do so well. In uh, other North Carolina educational news, two weeks ago, I, uh, my wife and I went to Chapel Hill, where the one of the other branch campuses of the University of North Carolina is located, uh, to see our daughter Caroline get her white coat in her first semester of medical school. It was a great moment for her and for us. We could not be more proud. While we were there, we walked across the grassy place in the center of campus. Um, uh, not sure what it's called. They call it the mall here at ECU, the Diag at Michigan, it's, uh, whatever that central lawn is. And I was struck by the fact that you can't tell where the statue of Silent Sam used to be. It's uh, just grass now. It's not even a different shade of grass. So now there's nothing at all there. And it struck me as a public historian that in a few years, uh, we will eventually see a plaque on that spot, a marker describing how the space reflects the changing memories of the Civil War. 1865 to 1913, just like today, there's nothing there. Then in 1913, the space gets used to commemorate a lost cause memory of the Confederacy, uh, which endures until 2018. Then the space returns to its original 1865 to 1913 condition of nothing, uh, of real silence. And then uh, it will regain its voice in, who knows, 2025 maybe, uh, whenever the plaque is put up. And the plaque could serve many purposes besides describing the changing memory of the war. It could talk about how many UNC students actually served in the war, how many were casualties, and so on. And then it would actually be preserving history, unlike Silent Sam, who didn't convey any information, just emotion. Uh, Then we would actually be teaching some history with that site. And that theoretically would make those happy who say we shouldn't uh, remove history by changing statuary. Uh, This would actually be historical information. Well, that's a public historian's dream. We'll see if it comes true. Back here at Civil War Talk Radio headquarters, I urge you, as always, to check out uh, www.impedimentsofwar.org or the Facebook page of the same name, both run by Mark Gaffney. I want to say thanks to uh, those of you who have contributed to Civil War Talk Radio by going to the website and clicking the PayPal button. Uh, special thanks to some generous, very generous recent donors. Much appreciated. The Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund is this month subtitled uh, Book and Plumbing Fund as we consider installation of a new sewer line at 205 Oxford Road. So your donations are especially welcome. It's not a charity. There's no deductibility. Please don't put this on your taxes or we'll all go to the big house together. And I don't mean Michigan Stadium. You uh, can find, you can also help the website by buying your books through Impediments of War. When you go to the site, you see a book title, book cover that interests you. Click on it. It takes you to Amazon. Now, of course, the best way to buy your books, as we all know, is to go into a physical independent bookstore and support them. But if you don't have one near you, sadly, uh, and you have to buy it online, if you get there via the website, that 
puts in a small cut for the website when you make the purchase, so that would be helpful. Speaking of books, there are many coming up that we'll be talking about on the show. Uh, It's middle of October 2019 as we talk tonight. Next week on October 23rd, S.C. Gwynn will be here to discuss Hymns of the Republic, the story of the final year of the American Civil War. And we'll finish out the month of October with Rich Condon of Civil War Pittsburgh, which is not a book at all, but a Facebook page. He's also involved in a Pennsylvania in the Civil War website and a chance to uh, talk about someone who does public history. Besides authors, there are many other ways to present history, and we'll hear about his efforts. Back to authors on in November 2019 on the 6th, John Grady will be discussing uh, Matthew Fontaine Maury, the father of oceanography and Confederate naval uh, personality. We'll have Philip Gerard talking about the Civil War in North Carolina, which we'll be talking about tonight as well. And then on November 20th, a brand new book coming out, uh, Vicksburg, Grant's Campaign That Broke the Confederacy by Donald L. Miller. We'll take a break for Thanksgiving in the last two weeks of the fall uh, season here at Civil War Talk Radio will be a book on a topic we have not touched on very much before. It's called On Duty in the Pacific Northwest During the Civil War, and it involves the 1st Oregon Cavalry Regiment. James Robbins Jewell is the editor. And we'll finish out the semester with the long-promised Kevin Levin book, Searching for Black Confederates, The Civil War's Most Persistent Myth. Uh, Look forward to talking with Kevin about that uh, and many other things. So lots coming up. Uh, uh, Please join us for those, but we're glad you are here right now. To talk about the Civil War in North Carolina in 1864, our guest tonight is a friend of the show. He returns. We've talked to him about uh, the, uh, the Petersburg campaign, and his new book is called The Fight for the Old North State, The Civil War in North Carolina, January to May 1864. Uh, Hampton Newsom is the author. Hampton, are you there? Yes, Jerry. Thanks for having me, and uh, a belated happy birthday to you. The Internet tell me you had a birthday recently. They they did. One of many, as it turns out, that was uh, just a couple days ago. Since then, I've gotten a flu shot and had blood drawn and a heart monitor attached to make sure I'm as as sound as I'm supposed to be at this age. So uh, the years just pile up. Uh, But thank you for the birthday wishes nonetheless. Sure. Uh, It's good to have you back on the show with a new book, which I've been looking forward to reading for quite a while and had to wait till this week because each week brought its own book. It is a uh, story about a time in the war that is not typically studied. There are two questions that open the interviews on this show uh, uh, frequently. One is, you're writing about the Battle of Gettysburg. Why do we need another Gettysburg book? And yours is the other side. You're writing about North Carolina in 1864. Why do we need any books about that? What what happened there? So uh, let's start with the big picture. Why, uh, why, why, what brought you specifically to studying this topic? Well, I think um, it. The, there were these events in 1864, and, and in a nutshell, Robert E. Lee was having a supply crisis in Virginia, and he 
proposed that um, there be an offensive in North Carolina to regain some of the positions that were lost early in the war in the eastern part of the state. And he wanted to do this to open up these areas, particularly for the commissary agents to bring up supplies into Virginia. Uh, But there was also another issue that was on his mind and on the minds of other Confederate leaders, and that was a growing peace movement in North Carolina that was kind of threatening um, the Governor Vance there, and and also um, people were clamoring for negotiations for to to end the war or pull North Carolina out of the war. It was kind of unclear what they were looking for, but in launching these military operations, Lee was looking to uh, kind of tamp that down. So it was kind of a dual purpose, but. To, so, so that's kind of the background. But mm-hmm. to to me, the the events there, there were several battles. Um, it just it made a really good story, and I, I thought it would make a a good book. And so you have these very interesting military things. You've got a Confederate ironclad that was started in a cornfield and floated down to help the Confederates capture Plymouth, and you had a cutting out expedition at. Newburn that was almost successful, uh, and uh, Confederates almost capturing a train at Newburn and riding it into the to the city, and then you also had the burning of Little Washington. All of these events, a lot of people know about or have heard about, but they were all part of this connected operation. And uh, so, what I wanted to do was tell that whole story in a book. Then it is a great story. I really enjoyed reading this. Uh, now. For me, as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I, I've been there. I've, I've coached my daughter's soccer team in games against those guys at uh, New Bern or Washington. Uh, we didn't go as far as Plymouth from here. We tended to go south, Swansboro. Uh, mm-hmm. But but uh, if, if for listeners who aren't from this, aren't from around here, uh, it, it it may take more doing to get them into it, uh, but well, I, I guess the real question is what what brought you into it in the first place? Just this, you, you'd read about it and thought, oh, that'd be a good story. Well, I I'd, I'd read about it, and a um, a, a fellow researcher suggested I look at it. Uh, Bryce Sudero, um, oh yeah, who has a lot lots of ideas for different projects and mm-hmm. has helped me out over the years. He said, Hampton, you should really look at um, Pickett's effort to take Newburn and. Uh, 1864. So I looked at it, and, and what I, I try to do with the projects that I've worked on, uh, mm-hmm. like the Petersburg book, uh, also is to, to find something that I find interesting that hasn't had a lot of coverage that I think would make a nice you know narrative history uh, uh, that that also has some. Uh, you know, these books are primarily military studies, but I'm also very interested in. And the and the uh, background, like why did these happen? What was what were the political issues? The Petersburg book, you've got the 1864 mm-hmm. presidential election. Here you've got the the peace movement in North Carolina, and then all the other very complicated social and political issues that are going on in North Carolina at the time. So um, I was just kind of drawn in, and as I did more research, I you know I I just saw that there was a lot there. Um, and uh, all of this kind of you know connected together into a uh, book link study. Well, I think anyone reading this book uh, is likely to have the response of why hasn't this been done before? By the time you finish, you uh, as you say, there are just a number of fascinating 
vignettes throughout, but it's also an important story. Uh, one of the things that really helps it hang together, I thought, were the maps. Who did the maps for the book? I, I do the maps for my book, so um, oh, thank you. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> they're really good, you know. That thanks, uh, and I I've done I did it for uh, the first book I worked on was uh, called Civil War Talks. I did with John Selby and and uh, John Horn on the. Uh, it's essentially kind of the lost second volume of War Talks of Confederate Veterans, and I've worked on the maps ever since and tried to improve them, but. I have to say there are a lot of other people out there that are making good maps. I'm thinking my next project, maybe I'll, I'll hang up the map making and get somebody else. We'll see. Well, I mean, there really are some outstanding map makers, map makers. You know, Hal Jesperson, uh, George Skelk uh, come to mind. Edward uh, Alexander is a very good map maker. Another excellent one. Mm-hmm. But one one of the pet peeves uh, that I have as a reader is when you're reading uh, about a place that isn't well known, and there are town names or names of creeks being mentioned. You look at the map, and they don't appear because the map maker and the author aren't in sync. And this explains why, when you mention a town where something happens, you also know enough to put it on the map so so we can follow along. Well, I want to ask. Uh, to start at the beginning, more or less, uh, there are a number of campaigns. The first is the Confederate attempt to capture New Bern in 1864, in February 1864. So we'll come back with that story in just a moment. Uh, talking tonight with Hampton Newsom. He's the author of The Fight for the Old North State, The Civil War in North Carolina, January to May 1864. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you. It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. For Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access all the time streaming live 
is the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Hampton Newsom, author of The Fight for the Old North State, The Civil War in North Carolina, January to May 1864. It's the scene of the last major Confederate offensive in this part of the country, and it begins with uh, an attempt by the rebels to retake New Bern, which uh, was in Union hands since 1862. Hampton, one of the things that strikes me about the whole situation there is that today, Greenville, uh, and I say this with all modesty, is certainly the, the heart of eastern North Carolina with the university, the medical school, the hospital, uh, the football stadium. The, the the growth and construction here are, are astronomical. New Bern is still there and, and prosperous and a much prettier town, actually. But it's not the center of things, whereas in, in the period you're writing about, Greenville barely makes it into the index of the book. It, nothing happened here of significance. But New Bern is the heart of everything. Uh, why was New Bern so important in 1864? Well, uh, like a lot of things in the Civil War, you have to follow the railroads, and so um, in uh, so Newburn sat on the Atlantic and North Carolina Railroad, which ran from Beaufort down on the coast through Newburn, through Kenston, through Goldsboro, and and to Raleigh, um, and the um, so and Greenville was not on the railroads, right on on no. the uh, the Tar River there. So mm-hmm. and, and Newburn's also. It's it's inland. It's on a very defensible position right on the river. It's bracketed by the Trent River and the Noose River, uh, and so that was a logical place for Burnside. When Burnside captured North Carolina early in the war, it was a logical place for him to, um, you know, to kind of set up the main base. Uh, one of the things I talk about in the book is the the fact that the Union High Command never really took advantage of this lodgment in North Carolina in the war. There were some raids, there were some plans, but um, there was never a concerted attempt to to uh, go inland and, and uh, try to sever, most importantly, the Wilmington and Weldon Railroad, which was the main supply line into Virginia uh, in 1864. Um, in fact, at that time, there was really only one line that ran through Weldon. That, there was a later line down on the... Uh, the Piedmont Railroad was built. So, mm-hmm. so it's just a, a you know, that, that's where, so Newburn was this key position, and Grant understood that. I mean, Grant, in 1864, he planned an offensive into North Carolina to, um, to cut the railroad and use Newburn as kind of the base of supply, but that was, as I talked about in the book, it, it, that was beat back by Halleck. Halleck didn't really want to make that kind of commitment in North Carolina. I have a graduate student writing his master's thesis on the Foster's raid and Goldsboro Bridge fight, uh, and he's finding out everything you're saying, that, that the, the railroad to North Carolina is the critical 
supply line for Lee's army, even in 1862, it's very important, but mm-hmm. but but just those little raids won't cut it. Now, in 64, on the other hand, we, the Confederates are going the other way. They're going to try to retake New Bern. Um, the, your description of, of the attack in 1860, February 1864, uh, th- is just filled with so many interesting you know, vignettes, and you mentioned some of them. Uh, I don't know where to start. Uh, what What's the most fascinating or peculiar thing about that battle in your view? Well, it, it's an incredibly compl- complicated operation. You know, there are these five prongs uh, that the Confederates plan. They're, they're spread out. It, it's hard to coordinate. To me, the most interesting part is the, the, the naval prong. And so the, the, one of the big issues, one of the big things to think about in 1864 are these ironclads that the Confederates are building uh, one um, up in Kinston uh, on on the Noose and another on the Roanoke River. But when Lee makes his proposal to go after New Bern in January of 1864, those aren't ready yet. So instead of, uh, in lieu of the ironclads, uh, John Taylor Wood, who's President Davis's nephew is um, and a very capable officer, is ordered to take Marines down and uh, launches and rowboats, essentially, and join Pickett in this offensive. And um, they rowed down the Noose River, and at night they attacked. They row. They, they attacked the largest Union gunboat there, and uh, they seize it. And they've almost got control of it, but they can't. Uh, they the, they can't uh, get the uh, the anchor chain. Uh, is they they can't break it, and they start getting shelled by, from the uh, the shoreline, and they the boat ends up sinking, and so that ends up uh, being a failure. But to me, that's kind of the most interesting thing, but there are several other things that happen. Uh, Eventually, there's not a lot of combat, and so it's not considered a real major battle, but but, uh, there's certainly lots of interesting things, and I found uh, a lot to fill up several chapters there in the book. Now, you mentioned the name Pickett. This is George Pickett of Gettysburg fame we're talking about, correct? Correct, yes. And so he's, he's um, well, yeah, what's his role? Ahead. So he is, uh, after, in the fall of 1863 and into 1864, he is in charge of the North Carolina Department and, and the area southeast of, of Petersburg. So he's the one, when this plan is hatched by Lee, um, he's the one that's given charge of it. Now, not after, uh, there, there are some, some very strange discussions between Davis and Lee. Um, Davis says, well, Lee, you should go and, and um, command this expedition to New Bern. And Lee says, oh, I'm too busy, I can't do it. And Davis says, well, you know, maybe I'll take a couple of days off and do it, <laughs> which is a very strange thing for the chief executive to say. But eventually they settle on picket. Um, but what's interesting is a lot of the, the planning and a, a lot of the behind-the-scenes work is done by this young North Carolina General Robert Hoke. And so even with the Newburn expedition, Hoke is kind of uh, the, the mastermind behind the scenes. So the, uh, the, the plan involves, as you say, multiple prongs. Newburn's going to be attacked from different points of the compass. Uh, your description of, of the... Uh, I, I, in my notes, I just wrote Herring's fight, the uh, uh, the delaying action fought oh, by at Union Bachelor troops. Creek. Yeah, at Bachelor Creek, it was fascinating. Just just a couple dozen guys hold up the whole attack for for half a day. 
for for several hours in the early morning right there on the road there's a there's a bridge uh, across this little stream Basher Creek west of Newburn uh and along that is kind of the outer uh federal line a series of blockhouses and strong positions on uh uh at the the various crossings uh, of that creek and and Hoke and Pickett their their prong of the attack arrive there and and it's dark the planks on the bridge are taken up. Um, the stream is kind of difficult to cross. It's not something you can just bound across. And the um, and the darkness, um, the, these uh, New Yorkers in the blockhouse uh, managed to kind of hold off the 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 entire advance for a couple of hours. Now, eventually, Hoke uh, orders men to find another crossing, and they outflank the position. But uh, the, it's uh, interesting. Thing and Herring, the uh, the 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 um, young man who's kind of finds himself in command of just a dozen or so men at first in this blockhouse. He eventually um, earns the Medal of Honor. Uh, although when I pulled his file at archives, I found that he applied for it himself. He he wrote <laughs> Washington a couple of decades after the war, saying, "Hey, you know, I did this back in the war." Uh, and it seems like it'd be a good thing to get the the uh, the medal for. So. Well, it, but not unjustified. Certainly, it's it's quite no, no, absolutely. It, it was, and, and I, and it wasn't. Uh, it was certainly um, as deserving as uh, there. There were several of those awards given for some of these operations, and he definitely deserved it. So when uh, when people portray a civil war battle in form of a, a board game, a war game, and I, I say this because you've designed war games, uh, the phrase chrome is used to describe bits of the battle that are included in the game that weren't really decisive, but they're just too interesting to leave out. Uh, to me, the armored train uh, at, at at the Battle of Newburn, 1864, has to be one of those bits of chrome. Uh, it doesn't change the course of the battle, but what's an armored train doing on the battlefield? What? It's one of these, um, they called it a monitor down there, um, and there were several examples of those in the war. Newburn was this very heavily fortified town, and, and the uh, federal forces had it beginning in uh, early 1862, so they had plenty of time to fortify it, and as part of the part of the defenses, in addition to telegraph wires and things like that, they had a train that had a car on it that had um, two two guns on it and so during this battle they um they they uh the, this train came out to the front there at Basher Creek and and exchanged fire with the Confederate batteries and, and then it dashes back and almost gets captured it, it just it's it's very That's cinematic right. so, yes and and when Hoke Hoke breaks through that outer line and he's racing to Newburn now the inner defenses at Newburn are extremely strong um and he's trying to get there before they're manned and uh and as the 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 outposts are the union outposts are streaming back to Newburn uh they hop aboard this train and Hoke uh, understands what's happening and and his units are racing for this key crossing where the road that they're on to Newburn crosses the railroad and they uh according to multiple accounts they get there um just a little too late, and the train is uh, speeds by. But Hoke, Hoke, his plan was to stop the train, load his troops on the train, 
and ride right into the heart of New Bern and capture it that way. And he talks about it after the battle, about how upset he was that that improvised plan didn't work. So, again, the, trying to capture a Union naval vessel by Marines and rowboats, trying to capture a train, ride it into the enemy city. Uh, all kinds of interesting things are happening here. Uh, ultimately, the the attack is unsuccessful, as you described, for, for a number of reasons. I, I wanted to skip ahead to the aftermath of this particular battle, because it's something that is remarkably forgotten in well, in eastern North Carolina in local lore. You don't find markers to it or uh, discussions of it very prominently. But in the, the aftermath, uh, General Pickett executes a number of Union uh, prisoners of war. Could you talk about that event? Sure, sure. So one of the interesting aspects of the war in North Carolina is that there are a number of um, white Union units recruited um, in North Carolina, and so the uh, and and those are those men are spread out at the various outposts. Um, there are also several uh, um, African American units that are recruited in North Carolina as well. But uh, in this case, at Newburn, one of the outposts along the Batra Creek line is this place called Beach Grove, and there's a company of these uh, North Carolina uh, men in blue. Uh, they, they were referred to during the war uh, as buffaloes, particularly by the Confederates, um, a name that has kind of murky origins. But during the operations at New Bern, um, the, uh, this company, along with some uh, other men at that point, are, are captured en masse, and they, they're marched back to Kinston. And while they're being marched back, it's discovered that uh, several of them, uh, several dozen of them are were in Confederate or at least North Carolina state units early in the war, so they had essentially switched sides. Uh, once this is discovered, uh, Pickett orders um, tribunals, uh, and eventually over a, there are a series of executions, and about two dozen of them um, are executed. And so it's it's an interesting, and there has been there have been some very good. Um, Articles written about this. Leslie Gordon has done work on mm -hmm. it. Um, it's not something that's unknown. Um, right. The uh, the interesting thing to me was um, was Pickett. What, whether Pickett's decision to go ahead with this was something that um, was going to forward the goals of the operation at the time, and one of the important goals was to boost morale in Eastern North Carolina, and. Um, and there were certainly mixed uh, feelings uh, of, uh, about this, uh, about these executions. Some felt that it was harsh. Um, others felt that it was, you know, perfectly justified given that these men had switched sides. After the war, there there is a, a, a investigation into it, um, and the kind of legal issue seems to revolve around whether these men were, in fact, in Confederate service or kind of state or local service before they they joined the, the Union ranks. And things were never really resolved. But after the war, Pickett, it, the issue haunts Pickett. He, and he, as he's being investigated, he flees to Canada with his family in order to uh, avoid problems. Um, the issue kicks around for a while. Grant intervenes on Pickett's behalf. And eventually, the uh, Johnson's 
general amnesty kind of gets Pickett off the hook. But um, but it, it it's it's definitely a, a interesting kind of tr- a tragic episode uh, in Eastern North Carolina at the time. Yeah, it, I mean everybody involved is from Eastern North Carolina except Pickett, of course, who's from Virginia. And the the men who were executed, many of them have family right there in Kinston. Uh, mm-hmm. So these are these are not strangers; these are local guys. It it, it yeah, understandably traumatic for the region. Uh, as you noted, it, it did have the effect of suppressing recruitment for future uh, North Carolina white union units because the people could see what would happen if they got captured. Uh, so uh, Pickett does not. Uh, well, the next major event, and, and we'll, we'll get to it as we get to our next segment, uh, after the, the failure to capture Newburn, we see the Confederates attacking Plymouth, North Carolina, on the Roanoke River. And here, uh, Pickett's no longer in charge. Uh, the, you mentioned General Hoke earlier. What, what gets Hoke the, the nod ahead of Pickett for this operation? So, so Hoke is, uh, Lee likes Hoke a lot, and... Um and he's given a lot of responsibility. He's, he's very young. He's in his 20s. Um, Pickett actually, Pickett, who's kind of, the spring of 1864 is kind of a, begins an unraveling for him that kind of ends poorly at Petersburg. He kind of has a breakdown. Um, but uh, the, uh, during the spring, the, Newburn's unsuccessful, but Lee wants to keep men down there. He wants to have another tug at these um, Union bases. And they... Um, in Richmond, they uh, they actually asked Pickett to write up a a plan for another offensive, and and Pickett recommends going against Plymouth. But then the operation is given to Hoke, and Hoke was a a very talented leader and well thought of, and uh, and the the high command in Richmond thought that that uh, Hoke would be the the person in order to bring the offensive home uh, at Plymouth. So that's going to be our next uh, engagement here. We'll take another short break, come back, talk more with our guest tonight, Hampton Newsom, author of The Fight for the Old North State, The Civil War in North Carolina, January to May, 1864. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Hampton Newsom, author of The Fight for the Old North State, The Civil War in North Carolina, January to May, 1864. We left off, uh, we talked in the second segment about the offensive against New Bern, North Carolina, which failed, followed in April by an attack on another river town. This is Plymouth on the Roanoke River. What, what is there at Plymouth? Is there any reason for the Union to be garrisoning Plymouth, defending Plymouth? What, what's valuable there? Well, uh, that, that's a good question, and one that was the, the, the Navy, especially Phillips Lee, who's the, uh, the kind of the head of naval operations there at the time, uh, asked repeatedly, why, why, are we, uh, why do we have men at these outposts like Washington and Plymouth on these rivers? There's, there's no rail line nearby, um, and so it, that, that was kind of a debate. Now, the benefit of it was that it provides a a, um, a convenient way to project power into the surrounding counties and conduct raids and that kind of thing. And there are a lot of raids that are conducted in North Carolina um, throughout the war. So, so it is a um, it, it is an interesting question. Um, it was not they they did not um, establish a base there right away. The Union forces in 1862, but eventually they set it up and over time uh, fortified that 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 town. And you mentioned throughout the book also the, the backdrop that as the Union is occupying and holding eastern North Carolina, this is tearing apart the fabric of the institution of, of chattel slavery. The, uh, the people held in slavery are flocking to places like New Bern and later uh, Washington, North Carolina, and Plymouth, and anywhere where the Union Army has an enclave. So even though these aren't militarily useful, they do serve as magnets for refugees that, uh, in, in turn, weaken the southern position. That's absolutely right, and 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 the um, and the the slaves are coming to the Union positions right away, right right after the victories in 1862, well before the Emancipation Proclamation, as they were in, in other locations, and so um, you know self-emancipation. Uh, just picks up steam, and you have thousands coming into New Bern, and then uh, and also into these enclaves further to the north. And many of them um, go to our the, the Union commanders uh, set up uh, 
a place on Roanoke Island for them, and so that's a mm-hmm. key position for the, the union also in, in that area. Now, the attack on Plymouth, unlike the attack on Newburn, is successful. The Confederates capture it. As you said a moment ago, it's a, it's a defended and fortified spot, and if there's one thing the Civil War teaches uh, in terms of tactics, it's don't attack a fortified spot head-on. It's not going to work. Why does it work at Plymouth? So the key is the, the ironclad Albemarle, and uh, ah. it is finally, it, it, it's being built upriver from Plymouth um, by April. So the Newburn operation is in February 1864, and uh, there's kind of this lull as uh, the Confederates are waiting for the ironclads to be finished, and the Albemarle is finished sometime in, in April. And uh, the Plymouth operation uh, begins, the, the first day of it is April 17th. So, but it's kind of interesting because the communications are difficult, obviously. Hoke takes his land force and goes after Plymouth and arrives outside of these uh, fairly substantial lines um, there and begins his operations. They're not very successful. He has told the the um, the captain of the Albemarle to you know when he's going and to to come down um, and so the Confederates are kind of waiting for the ironclad to arrive uh, and it does uh, the second night of the of the battle and um, in a very short uh, violent engagement uh, essentially wipes out the the two the, well. It drives. It sinks one of the Union vessels there and drives off another. But uh, when it gains um, control there of the river, it is sitting right behind the federal lines. And the federal lines are not. Federal lines were constructed at Plymouth with the assumption that there would be uh, Union naval control of the river there. But with the Confederate ironclad there, there's nothing to protect the back of those lines and the Albemarle against shelling and. Um, and it, it causes all kinds of problems. And then there is another um, key uh, event that happens when, when Hoke sends Matt Ransom's group brigade around to the, the Union left, and they manage to cross a, a key creek, Conaby Creek, down there. Um, and they get to the left side of the Union line where the earthworks are not as strong. This is right next to the river, again, with the assumption that there'd be gunboats right there protecting it, and without those gunboats, uh, Hocus successfully, uh, Ransom successfully drives into Plymouth and captures Plymouth, but it all happens because of the, the ironclad. So, the it, have you actually, have you uh, seen the the scale ironclad? I have, yes, yeah, and, uh, and I had a lot of help um, down in Plymouth from the folks there, Elizabeth Freer and and David mm-hmm. Bennett, public historians there, and Jimmy Hardison. I haven't seen it in operation, but I've seen it there in the river. It, it's it's quite something for listeners. If you're ever in eastern North Carolina in the spring, go to Plymouth's Civil War days for the reenactment there because it does include this, uh, is it a half-scale model, three-quarter scale model? I'm not sure how big. Um, I, I'm not sure either. I, I would say but, smaller than half, but I'm not sure. 
maybe even quarter scale, but it's big enough that it's a boat that sails out on the uh, the river and fires blank rounds from its gun, uh, which are loud, and there's a lot of smoke. And from a distance, if you sort of squint and forget about perspective, you can picture it being full size. Uh, I mean, it's big enough for people to, to sail in, and it, it's it's quite a show. Uh, but it also gives you a sense that if that is behind you, if you're a union defender of the, the city, of the town, and this thing is sailing uh, behind, there's no way you can hold on anymore, as you say. It, it's, it fires into the rear of the union lines. Let me ask a, a real detail question. In the aftermath of the battle, the union regiments surrender. The 16th Connecticut is one of them. And you mentioned Leslie Gordon a moment ago. She's written a, a book that, that you're familiar with and listeners have heard us talk about on the show about that regiment, uh, a broken regiment, she calls it. Uh, and she describes in their surrender how the men afterwards treasured the memory of tearing apart their regimental colors and uh, saving them even as they went into captivity at, at Andersonville. And that after the war, they construct a heroic memory even out of their repeated defeats largely built on the the saving of the colors at Plymouth when they otherwise surrender. In your book, you say they burned their colors, and it was a New York regiment that tore up their colors. I'm just curious if, if you read Leslie's book, if, if, uh, if, if you saw different sources, or if this is just, uh, if, if I'm going too far in the weeds here. Well, I, I, I don't think you're going too far in the weeds, but I would have to go back and check uh, that that I'll 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 check that out. It's not something that um, you know is, is a was was a you know big part of that no. that uh, that chapter. But uh, it's interesting. I'll I'll look at it. The uh, well, you 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 talk in more detail about something that is a big part of the the scenario at uh, at Plymouth. Uh, in the aftermath of the battle, there are. Uh, African-Americans in uniform, there are also uh, the Buffaloes, as you described, white North Carolinians who are fighting for the United States. And uh, we see here, uh, as you describe, also after Ransom's Raid in February and March of 1864, Confederate soldiers uh, killing African-American prisoners. but it's a disputed account. It, as at Fort Pillow, as everywhere, you'll find people trying to argue that it didn't happen or it didn't happen on a large scale. Uh, what, what did you find happened here at at Plymouth? Well, my my conclusion was that there there were um, there there were murders of prisoners after the battle, and um, and I collected a lot of material on it. Um, but I also relied heavily on. Uh, extremely uh, detailed study that was done by Weymouth Jordan and Gerald Thomas in the North Carolina uh, Historical Journal um, in the 90s that went through uh, every account that they could find. And their conclusion was that um, these events did, in fact, happen. uh, Although the the, the circumstances, the numbers involved are kind of murky, Uh, Plymouth Plymouth was a... There were no... um, USCT's units at Plymouth, but Plymouth was mm-hmm. an important recruiting station. So there were several regiments that uh, rec- there were recruiting officers from regiments that were not in Plymouth. Uh, that and those recruiting officers were there gathering men, and there were over 200 uh, African American recruits. Uh, and so some of them were killed after the battle. 
I did find, I found some additional sources, um, and, you know, it, it's one of these things where you, you need to look at all of the sources and weigh um, when, the, when the accounts were provided and that kind of thing. Um, but there, there are several sources, Confederate sources, that talk about this. And, um, and so I, I think, the, the, you know, on balance there was, um, you know, that it, it certainly happened. The, um, you know, one of the interesting things, you know, the, there was no... There, there was no investigation um, done by the War Department of this afterwards, so the sources that you have are just the ones that are kind of scattered around. Mm-hmm. Now, the uh, again, there are so many interesting things in this book, which is why listeners have to get themselves a copy of it. Uh, the, the, the capture of Little Washington, I'll, I'll put it in a nutshell for, for listeners, uh, the Confederates show up. The Union is ordered to evacuate the town, but the Confederates show up before they can do that. Confederates decide the Union are too strong, so they back away. Then the Union completes the evacuation. It's like, what if they had a battle and nobody came? Both sides are going the opposite direction. Uh, it, it, it's it's one of the most remarkable town captures in the war. But we just have a minute left, so let me give a, a concluding question. What's the takeaway? What how effective was this offensive overall? Plymouth is captured. Uh, did did Lee achieve any of his goals that he saw in January 1864? Yeah, I, I, my conclusion is that it was it was very successful for the Confederates in terms of mm-hmm. so you know their goals are the, there's the political goal with the the peace movement and then there's the supplies and the supplies unfortunately um, most of those records are are just not extant, you know, maybe they were destroyed on the, uh, in, in Richmond, you know, in the last days of the war. But, um, mm-hmm. but I did, I was able to find in correspondence and newspapers accounts that, that stated flat out that even into the fall, uh, a lot of the supplies that were, uh, helping Lee's army in, in, in Richmond were coming from the areas opened up by the, uh, the, the, um, the Plymouth operation and the capture of Little Washington. On the political side, uh, Vance, for uh, many reasons, but partly because of these these military victories, uh, goes on and wins his re-election by landslide that summer, kind of solidifying his position and, and Confederate control in North Carolina. So to that extent, um, these operations were were very successful. And I think the, the over, overall point is, the, the, to me, the interesting aspect is how important North Carolina was to the Confederacy, uh, mostly because of, um, just logistically, because of its position and, and the railroads running through it and its connection to Virginia. Um, and so maintaining control there was very important to the Confederacy and certainly contributed to... Um, you know, to the Confederate war effort. Well, it, it is, uh, it, 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 as you say, it, it, it shows that this was a significant campaign. This is not just uh, fighting for fighting's sake. It does have ramifications elsewhere. It has social and political ramifications. Militarily, it's a fascinating story. Uh, physically, this book is uh, a very handsome uh, work. The University Press of Kansas has produced it. Uh, illustrations great are great. 
the maps uh, are, are great. It just it, it's a pleasure to read. Uh, beautifully organized listeners, you really do want to get a copy of the fight for the old North State. The Civil War in North Carolina, January to May, 1864, by our guest tonight, Hampton Newsom. Hampton, thanks so much for being on the show. All right, thanks a lot. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm